0: We've been studying the book of Proverbs, and we are going to get through, by the time uh, I'm ready to go on sabbatical in a couple of weeks, we will have finished chapter 9, verse 18, and Proverbs 1, 1 to nine eighteen is a section whereas wisdom is calling for us to embrace her, to follow her. These two choices are being laid, these two paths of lives are continually being laid before us, the way of wisdom and the way of folly. And in one sense, we are moving towards this culmination. When you get to Proverbs 8 and Proverbs 9, where we are, the entire narrative is moving towards a crescendo, where it's culminating and calling us. So as this father figure, the counselor, the sage, is speaking to his young sons, preparing them for maturity, he's also leading us to commitment. And that's where chapter 9 is going, where we will finish in two weeks. But as we've looked at chapter 8, we've said that Proverbs chapter 8 is divided into four sections, where in the first 11 verses, wisdom was calling and showcasing her beauty, the beauty of wisdom. In verses 12 through 21, wisdom was extolling reasons you ought to prize her and cherish her and value her, talking about the supremacy, the preeminence of wisdom. We covered that last week. Now, we have wisdom in verses 22 to 36, the verses we're going to cover two other reasons where we look at, here in verses 22 to 31, the antiquity of wisdom. Wisdom is a whole lot older than you think. And we're going to look at the ancient, the antiquity of wisdom, (laughs) followed by verses 32 to 36, the end of the passage, where it's basically moving us towards that crescendo and the necessity of wisdom. We're going to do that in two parts. I'm going to call it, if you're taking notes, Wisdom and Creation, and wisdom and redemption. So that's your basic outline. Let's take a look at the text. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 to 36. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Let's pray and ask God by his spirit to make clear and illumine our hearts to the teaching of his word. God, thank you for the promise of your word that it will not return to you void or empty, but will accomplish what you've set out for it, what you have purposed and intended for it to accomplish. So it's with great freedom that we trust the gospel to go forth from here, your word. And we ask humbly and we depend on the Holy Spirit to be our ultimate teacher, that I would simply be an announcer, a herald of this good news, and your spirit would take it, make it useful to our lives, impact our lives, that we would see the beauty, the glory, the wonder of who you are, and that you, by your word and spirit, would capture our hearts and our entire beings for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Wisdom and creation and wisdom and redemption. Share a personal story, personal account. Those of you who know Evie and I know that we love Disney World. Evie especially loves Disney. As a matter of fact, I was speaking about the providence of God. We thought when we were called to come to Florida and move here, we thought, amongst other things, Disney's close by. Now, of course, I'm not sure how well I steward Disney, We tend to go every three to four years. So I'm not sure that that makes us great stewards of that resource that we have. But to tell you how much we loved it, when we got married, 1988, where'd we go on our honeymoon? Disney World. 25th anniversary. Supposedly has meaning and stuff. Where did Evie's parents send us to celebrate? Disney World. So we like that. So take you back almost 24 hours last night whatever, however many hours. I finish my work, we have dinner, we sit down. Now, Saturday night, I need to be vulnerable with you. I can be a little grumpy on Saturday nights. Okay? I have something called Sunday morning on my mind, and I would love to tell you I'm just relaxed, completely trusting the Lord, that I'm feeling free and easy and stuff like that. My head, my theology tells that. My heart, I can be a little irritable, a little bit grumpy. So every... Good wife that she is, she says, Jeff, we've got this Amazon Prime and they have movies with it. I found this movie. It's called Walt Before Mickey. And it's the story of Walt Disney and his growing up years before the creation of Mickey Mouse. And it was a very wholesome movie. I don't mind telling you. It was actually a very, very good movie. And one thing that struck me with it, because of course we knew kind of the biography, the basic gist of the story, we had no idea that Walt had this friend. I wrote it down because I would forget it. His name was Ub Iwerks. You would think I'd remember a name, Ub. How many of you? I wonder if that that was a nickname or if his mom and dad said, you look like an Ub. (laughs) I'm not real sure that that would be a compliment. Born, you are Ub. But anyway, they had this friend and as Walt is taking risks and starting this company and obviously people are leaving and he's failing and things are happening, Ub Iwerks stuck with him to the end. He was an example of what I would call not just a friend, but a loyal companion, a loyal friend. And it struck me, we all need friendships. We all need companions, friends in life. We were not built to do life alone. We were not built to go through life on our own. As a matter of fact, we were built for community. We were built to do life together. It's why, if you listened carefully to one of the passages Andrew read, even in the redemption bought by the blood of Christ, it was to purify for himself a people, a family, a community, not just individuals, but to knit together a family for himself, zealous to serve him with good works. God's vision is to build a family. And you know, even when you look at the dynamics of creation... Even the triune God had a companion in creation. Her name was Wisdom. When you look at it, for example, verse 27, when He, God, established the heavens, speaking of creation, notice Wisdom is saying, I was there. I was a companion. When He drew a circle on the face of the deep, when He made firm the skies above, when He established the fountains of the deep, when He assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress His command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him. That's rich language. Like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. God rejoiced and delighted in this companion called wisdom, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Now let's understand what's going on. It's very important that we understand the language. Here, see, what the text is saying, the teaching is very simple. When God made everything, when God created everything, wisdom is revealing that she was present with God. She was right there with God. But we have to remember that this is poetry. And we have to be careful not to get hung up with the technicalities. Wisdom is an attribute of God. Wisdom is not a fourth person of the Trinity. Okay? Make no mistakes of here. But what's going on here is that... Remember, as we've mentioned last week at the beginning of this chapter, wisdom is here by the sage, by the counselor, personified. He's using that grammatical form of speech known as personification, personifying wisdom as a lady, much like I had mentioned Galadriel, the elf queen, in the lord of the rings. And Lady Wisdom is crying out, encouraging, giving all the reasons why she is to be prized and cherished and therefore sought after above all things. So here is the sage saying how wisdom is rooted in God's creation design. And think about it, why does God speak to us through his word in poetry? Because he wants his word to capture our entire beings. He is not looking to simply dump information on our brains and have us be robotons where we just kind of follow the information we're giving. He wants us to love him. With all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, all our being. So he speaks in such a way, and here is wisdom, revealing herself in such a way to capture, yes, our reason and our understanding and our mind, but yes, also our affections and our imaginations, so that we will be captivated and gripped and grabbed hold of, because God does not want robots, he wants lovers. He created us to be lovers of himself, and he wants us to love him with all our beings. And one of the things this text teaches us is how God loves and has a passion and is committed to wholeheartedly and will not ever abandon his physical created world. He loves his creation. And there is a teaching, and it can be very subtle, it actually comes out of a philosophy that comes out of, well, it's been around for a long time, I can go all the way back to Plato and Aristotle if I wanted to. But it's the philosophy known as dualism. Now, I'm going to be much less smart than Plato and Aristotle was, I'm going to try to make it simple enough for me to understand. Here is the basic oversimplification of dualism. Dualism basically says that the spirit or the non-material, the non-physical world is good, and the physical, the material, is bad. And so it pretty much says we value. We value heaven, not earth so much. We value the spiritual. That's good. That's where Plato had it. He called it theory of forms. That's where the ideal is defined. That's where the real. This Not so much. Not so real. I don't know about you, but I read Proverbs 8, and i got a very different idea. I read Proverbs 8, for example, verse 22, that says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, speaking of wisdom. So the wisdom of God was there with God at the beginning, and everything God created, He created by the dynamic, guiding force, and power of His wisdom. Which the implication simply means he loves his world. He loves his earth. He loves body as well as soul. As a matter of fact, when we hear the word spiritual in the Bible, we need to hear spiritual as not just non-material. Spiritual in the Bible means both physical and material and non-material. The difference between spirit and flesh. Flesh doesn't mean our skin is bad. Flesh in the Bible means that part of us that's in rebellion to God. It's the spirit, it's the dynamism, it's the energy that is rebellious to God. Spiritual, as under the authority of the Holy Spirit, under the kingship of Jesus Christ, under the authority of God, involves both physical and non-physical. Let me just give an illustration, and an aspect from, look at what the Bible says about our worship. <clears throat> Look at what the Bible says about worship. And if you go to, for instance, the Psalms, which was the worship book, the hymn book, the prayer book, if you would, of the Old Testament, look at how much the Psalms talk about our bodies to be involved in worship. You read things like, clap your hands, all you nations. Last I heard, you had that. I'm using my physical body, my hands, to clap. Shout! Shout! Unto God, with cries of joy. It takes lungs, it takes a voice, it takes a tongue, physical to do that. We're told to raise our hands. We're told to get on our knees. Fall down before God in utter awe and reverence. Worship is to involve all of us. I don't think God considers the created world bad. And the entire Trinity, when God reveals himself, see, creation is a Trinitarian affair. When we read the Lord possessed me, wisdom, at the beginning of his work, his work of creation involved the entirety of the Trinity. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, right there, it says, the earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the earth. You get to the New Testament in John chapter 1 and we read in the beginning, notice similar language to Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word is Logos and we find out that the Logos is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, He was in the beginning, the Logos, Jesus was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. You get to the end, I had this as our scripture reading last Sunday, I was a week off, probably could have done this 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 week, but you get to the end of the New Testament in Revelation and you read, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Creation is a Trinitarian affair, a Trinitarian doctrine. Listen to how the theologian Cornelius Plantinga describes the glory of God as revealed in the Trinity being involved in creation. Plantinga writes, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify each other. Self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exalt, commune with, And defer to one another. Each harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance. Each person envelopes and encircles the others. So he writes, so creation is neither a necessity nor an accident. Instead, given God's interior life that overflows with regard for others. We might say creation is an act that was fitting for God. In creation, God graciously made room in the universe for other kinds of beings. God's splendor, God's glory becomes clearer whenever the Son of God powerfully spends himself in order to cause others to flourish. He created by the dynamic force of wisdom, possessed by God. Wisdom there, if you look at the text In all, as the waters were moved, as the heavens were made, as everything was established, as he decreed and founded under his sovereignty and his lordship, the exact limits of creation. He did it all as a stage for us to flourish. He did it as a stage for us to glorify and enjoy him forever. And we learn how along with the Trinity was wisdom. And Ray Ortland says, he says, wisdom was here first, before us. Wisdom was God's first reality. He wired wisdom into the cosmos as the inner logic of everything. He says, so wisdom was how everything started and how everything still works. We are born into this world long after things were set up so amazingly. He says, so what do we know? We cannot control our environment. We adjust to it. So biblical wisdom is more than handy tips. Wisdom is the secret code to reality. And Tremper Longman follows up on this, saying, If one wants to know how the world works and therefore how to navigate life with its problems and pitfalls, then wisdom is the one to get to know. Who would know better how to act in the world than the one through whom it was made? And not to inundate you with quotes, but I just feel like this is such important. John Calvin, one of our great reformers and heroes, says, There is not one little blade of grass, there is no color in this world, that is not intended to make men rejoice. Let's be practical about this and apply this now for a second. What do we learn? This has implications, friends, for our discipleship both personal, our individual lives, and our calling, our mission as a church. If God's heart is to care and love, have wisdom with him as he is creating the world, if his passion, his love for the world, his detailed design so intricately made, and he's not abandoning his world, don't you think that says something about how we should love this world? how we should care for the environment, how we should care for issues of mercy and justice and wholeness and holistic discipleship. What does this say about our care, our stewardship of this world that, by the way, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, is bestowing and gifting it to his children because he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit... Think about this and think of the implications. We'll inherit, not heaven, we'll inherit the earth. So, your inheritance, what you are being gifted, what you are an heir of, because Romans chapter 8 calls us heirs of God and co heirs with Christ. You're getting to open the will early, folks. Okay? Your God is raised to life and ascended at the right hand of in the heavenly places. And he said, Open the will. Open the envelope. I'm telling you what I'm leaving you. What I'm leaving you is the earth. And more than that, he says, heaven will one day come down to the earth. The whole thing will be transformed, new heavens and new earth, and you will be, here's the fancy word, vice regents, which simply means my ambassadors, my royal representatives to take care of it, to run it, to rule over it, to take care of it. And because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, this has been inaugurated now. It's certainly not yet finished. How much disease, how much injustice, how much poverty, how much homelessness, how many needs do we see in our world? But don't be dualists. Don't pit the spiritual against the physical. God loves his world and has not abandoned it. Which is why, in the next point, verses 26 and 31, wisdom and redemption, he says wisdom is, abs- wisdom is not a handy tip, wisdom is not an add-on, wisdom is an absolute necessity. Verse 26, he says, and now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways, hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me, finds life. That life means shalom, wellness, human flourishing. Whoever finds wisdom, finds flourishing. What they were created and built and designed to be as a human being. Your purpose in life. Whoever finds wisdom, finds that glorifying and enjoying God forever and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who fails to find me, the ESV says injured, the literal translation of the Hebrew is, does violence to himself. Failure to find wisdom is the greatest self-destruction you can do in your life. How How much necessity is wisdom? Now where is it connected with redemption? We've got to recognize That from the beginning, from the beginning, we had said that wisdom is being personified. And the fulfillment of that wisdom is what? That fulfillment of that wisdom is Jesus Christ. In the New Testament you read, Christ became for us wisdom from God. Our sanctification and holiness and righteousness. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 says, In him in Christ are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so when Lady Wisdom is calling out and saying, He who finds me, finds life. That's the same thing as John in his first letter. 1 John chapter 5 verse 12 saying, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. See, take a look at this. We said from the beginning, God created the world and he created the world to be very good. And the world is now fallen. And just because the world has fallen doesn't mean that the world itself or creation is bad. Why is the world fallen? The world has fallen because sinful man, in the person of our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled. Listen to the word of the serpent instead of the word of God. So they failed to live out of their God-given calling. And what was their God-given calling? Their God-given vocation. Genesis one twenty-eight says exactly what it was when God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, let us make them. Let them be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. In other words, be my vice regents, my royal representatives, my priests, and my royalty, my king, in my name, as my representative, it's like God sent his emissary, his image bearer, Adam and Eve, and said, I want you to run my world for me. Take care of my world. Be fruitful and multiply. Take Eden to the very ends of the earth and have dominion over it. So that when they fail to do that, They didn't just lose relationship like it's this individual thing with God. That yes, they lost that. They also failed in their vocation, in their purpose to run God's creation that he's passionate for. So when you get to redemption, God hasn't given up on his original plan. God is still committed to to his creation. He's still committed to his world. And he's still committed to plan his plan of running, taking care of his world through an image bearer. But he needed an image bearer who could do the job. He could need an image bearer. See, Adam didn't do the job. And you run through the Old Testament. Noah, good guy, found favor with the Lord, saved by grace, couldn't fulfill the job. Abraham, couldn't fulfill the job. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, should I stop now? None of them could do the job until you get to one who Paul, and I can't help but think that when Paul <coughs> penned Colossians chapter 1 from that prison cell and wanted that letter read, he ha- even though he's not quoting Proverbs 8, he had to have had Proverbs 8. Paul's mind saturated with the scriptures, as it were, had to have had it in the mind when he said of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. I don't think Paul would have used his words accidentally, and I know for a fact God-inspiring Paul would not have had words be used accidentally. That is a purposeful, intentional word. He is the image. In other words, he's the second Adam fulfilling the job description, the vocation, the calling that Adam and every other human being since Adam couldn't do. That calling to make the earth God's home. For by him, by Jesus, by this image bearer, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Which is telling us that when it calls Jesus the image of God, it's not saying he was created. He wasn't created. He created everything. It means he is, as a human being, fulfilling humanity's task. He is fulfilling humanity's task. Job description, because Jesus himself is the creator. The text says, in him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. And then it says, he's the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace By the blood of Jesus. Now listen to this. Whoever has the Son has wisdom. The Son is the one in Proverbs 8. The embodiment, the incarnation of wisdom calling out. Jesus is not just so you can go to heaven when you die. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, the new creation has been inaugurated, has been begun and he's the head of the body the church so wisdom is inviting you to be a part of god's solution to be a part of god's solution the church defined by paul in ephesians 1 23 as the body of christ the fullness of christ we're the fullness of jesus we're part of it the church universal the church worldwide is the fullness of jesus who's doing what filling all in all making this earth his home And he's doing that holistically. Evangelism, bringing people who don't know him to personal conversion. Discipleship, following him, bringing your lives, your marriages, your neighborhoods, your friendships, your work under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The church taking care of God's world and taking care of God's creation. Since the meek will inherit the earth, the earth is yours. God's saying, just begin it now. How? You're the fullness of me. You're empowered, you're inhabited, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All of this is by grace. He's saying, you don't do this. See, I read this, I need to just share this with you. One of the ways we make a mistake, and I read this in a book I'm currently reading by Eugene Peterson called Practice Resurrection. And in it, Peterson says, he says, we make a mistake when we view our response to the Bible as application. And here's what he means. He goes on to say, he says, so often we look at it and we get to, here's what God does. Here's God's action. God predestines. God makes holy. God sanctifies. God just, and then we apply. And he says, too often that can sound like to us, here's God's action. Now we go off and we do this on our own. And he says, that's not what the Bible teaches. God's involved in our lives. We live the entirety of our lives by grace. We're saved by grace, we're justified by grace, we're sanctified by grace, we will one day be glorified by grace. God's action at the beginning is still, so he says, let's redefine application as participation. We are called to participate in God's act. See what God is doing, and what is God doing? He's created, and according to Colossians 1, he is reconciling him to himself things on earth and things in heaven. He's bringing to personal conversion those who don't know Christ, his elect. He is using his elect, as I've been using the illustration, as his toolbox, his instrument. God is building his kingdom. We don't build God's kingdom. He's building his kingdom. We're the toolbox. So the question is, do you want to be part of the solution? Or are you, there's the the game that's going on, the football game, the soccer match, the whatever you want to call it. That game is called God building his new world. God building through the resurrection. He's building his new world. He's building his kingdom. He's making the earth the place for his home. We're his toolbox. The question is, are you on the sidelines watching? Or are you on the 50-yard line? Praying. Worshiping. Loving. Using your gifts. Using your skills. Using your talents, using whatever it is, finding your unique, your God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that, oh, by the way, this is why it's participation, that He's prepared for you to do in advance. So in other words, He's prepared this set of good works and He's saying, come participate. It is all of Him. The question is, will you be a spectator or will you be a participant? Wisdom is calling. Whoever finds me finds life. Whoever does not find me not only injures, but does violence to himself. This is a call of life and death. And chapter 9 of Proverbs, we'll see this in two weeks, is coming to and reaching a crescendo. This is along the lines of in the wisdom poetry what was said in the book of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. God, I'm just amazed at your redemptive plan, how you, have an, how you planned it, how you've executed it, how you are continuing to work it out in history. Your grace is just amazing. Your wisdom is amazing. Oh, Lord, that we would be a people getting to know wisdom in all things, making that our purpose and our goal. Use us to be a part of the solution. In our families, in our neighborhoods, in our ordinary lives as we live as a light to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.